Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. So we are going to continue in our series this week, uh, which we've been going for a little while on, Genesis. We're up to chapter 33. So we're going to open the Bible now to Genesis 33. We're going to read the whole chapter out of the NIV. Uh, So if you don't have a Bible on you, hopefully the words are behind me. Uh, But if you did want to grab one, there's some Bibles in baskets down the aisles. If you're brave enough to stand up and walk down and find one, uh, have a look through that there. If you want to have a physical Bible, if you don't actually own a Bible, um, grab one of those now or after the service. You take that with you uh, and read that one. Uh, That's our gift to you. So let's read together Genesis 33. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau, coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? he asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they bowed down too. Esau asked, What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. I have found favor in your eyes. Accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, Let's be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard just for one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, Then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. However, Jacob went to Sukkoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Sukkoth. After Jacob came from Padam Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Thank you, Luke. Today we are back in Genesis, as Lockie mentioned, and we're going to be talking today about reconciliation and relationship. Um, Just six weeks ago I preached a message called The Post-Conflict Road to Relationship. And in today's message, we're going to expand on some of the themes from that message. And so if you missed it, you can jump on the website anytime this week and listen to it. Some of you might be thinking, why are we talking about this again? Why are we talking about relationship and reconciliation and forgiveness and all those fun things? Well, there's three reasons I can think of this morning. The first one is that the text takes us there. 
Uh, one of the advantages of going through a book of the Bible is that you can't just preach on the things you want to preach on. You can't avoid the controversial topics. You just got to face what is there in the text before you. And today, the text once again takes us to this issue of forgiveness and relationship and reconciliation. And so we've got to deal with the difficult, the controversial, and sometimes even the repetitive themes of Scripture. The second reason is that I think there's still a lot that we can learn from Jacob and Esau. Um, They kind of stuffed it up the first time around, but this time around they do a lot better. So there's a lot that we can learn from Jacob and Esau in today's passage. The third one is this, that I think relational issues are repetitive in our lives. They come and they go and they come back again and they go again and they come again and it happens over and over again. And uh, who knows that we need to hear things more than once before we learn it. We do, right? If you've got kids, you know that, right? You're two years old, you don't just say, now behave yourself, and that's it. You're done. Job done. They just behave themselves. The next day, you've got to tell them to stop you know, pinching their brother and pulling their sister's hair, and you've got to teach them to say sorry and to say yes and no and all those things, and it's a constant thing, and, and they don't just get it once. You've got to go back and repeat over and over and over again, and really, God's Word is like that. It's very repetitive in some ways because it's a letter written to God's children, And God's children just don't get it the first time or the second time or the third time. And we've got to keep learning over and over again. And so we go back to this theme today because it's what's in front of us and because it's a repetitive issue in our life. It's part of the wrestle we have with God and with other people that it's not always easy to get along and we need to keep journeying together to learn how to do it better. So today, hopefully, we can learn and we can grow together as we look at this issue again. And so we're continuing our series in Genesis, and last week we left the story uh, with Jacob at a point where he'd been wrestling all night with God. He was by himself, as you remember, he was struggling with doubts and fears and regrets, and God engaged him in a wrestle. And I've got to say, I had more feedback about last week's message than any message I've preached for a long time, and it's not so much that I think it was one of the better messages I've preached, I think it was just more that it's a relatable topic. I think we can all relate to the wrestle that happens with God and with one another on a regular basis through the difficult seasons of life. And so we picked up for Jacob after a long and exhausting night of wrestling. We saw last week that he refused to let go of God until he received the blessing of knowing God in a deeper way. Jacob didn't give up when the wrestle got tough. And neither should we, because if we persevere... And we continue to trust God, even in the tough times of life, we too will overcome and learn new things about God and new things about ourselves in the process. That's what spiritual growth is all about. Jacob endured the wrestle that God engaged him in, and at the end of it, God blessed him and changed his name from Jacob, the deceiver, to Israel, the one who had wrestled with God and with humans and had overcome. This was an incredible encounter with God that would change Jacob's life forever. I think most of us can think of times where we believe we've had an encounter with God. For some of you, it might be the moment that you gave your life to Jesus for the first time, that you realized that you had fallen short in the sin of your life and you needed a savior and you experienced the love of God and you received Jesus into your life. And my prayer is that everyone has had that encounter here today. And if you haven't, well, today, there's no better day than today, than to put your your trust in Jesus. But you might remember that encounter. For others, it'll be a time where you felt God's presence in a tangible and and realistic way. It might have been during uh, worship. It might have been alone in your bedroom, but you experienced and felt the presence of God in a tangible way. For others, it's when he called you into a vocation or or a place of ministry. 
For some, it's a time where he prompted you to step out in faith and obedience in a significant way and you stepped out in obedience to God because you experienced and encountered God in that moment. I know I can look back at my own life and there are times of encounter that I can remember vividly. And as I look back at those encounters now, I can see how God intervened in my life in those key moments and in some ways changed the direction of my life as a result. But when I think about the encounter of God, encountering God, I think the evidence of a true encounter with God is what happens after. This week I was listening to a Jordan Peterson podcast about the existence of God. If you don't know Jordan Peterson, you've probably been living under a rock. He's a psychologist. He's probably the most famous intellectual uh, on the planet in the last few years. And while he's not a professing Christian, he does draw on a lot of Christian faith and on scripture in his work. Uh, Earlier this year, he did a number of sold-out shows in Australia. I was lucky enough to get along to one of those. And on his podcast this week, he, he said the question that people kept asking him in Australia specifically was, do you believe in God? It's an interesting question for him to be asked over and over again in Australia. And while he has on occasion acknowledged his belief in a higher being, he said that he doesn't like the question. This is what he said in his podcast this week. He said, who would have the audacity to claim that they believe in God. If they examine the way they live, who would dare say that? To have the audacity to claim that means that you live it out fully, and that's an unbearable task. It's an interesting observation. I don't think Peterson has ever truly grasped the concept of grace from a truly Christian understanding of it, because we all know that we fall short of God's standard and of his glory, but in the gap between us, our standard and God, we find grace, amazing grace. That's the amazing truth of the gospel, that even though we fall short, we can still live in relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross through his death and through his resurrection. But I think the point he's making is this, that if we truly believe in God, and the teachings of the gospel, then it should shape our lives in profound and very obvious ways. Because the evidence of an encounter with God is not just an emotional buzz. It's not just going forward at an altar call at the end of the service and and being on some sort of emotional high. I think the, the evidence of a lasting encounter with God, sorry, a genuine encounter with God, is lasting change in life. It may not be instant always, but it should always be constant. We should always be being transformed by God through the work of his spirit and through the truth of Jesus in our lives. So it should be a constant journey. At the end of chapter 32, Jacob had an encounter like this, an encounter with God, a genuine encounter. And the question is, will his life change? And I think by the end of chapter 33, I think we can answer that pretty clearly with the word yes. Throughout the series of Genesis we've seen the, the peak of God's beauty in creation and in his character. But we've also seen uh, the low points, haven't we, of humanity? The low points that sort of started at the fall where Adam and Eve decided they would rebel against God and do things their own way. And God, we don't, know you, we don't need you because we can kind of be our own God. And the moment they you turned their back on God and said, no, we'll do it our own way, sin kind of entered God's very good creation And we had what we know as the fall, and it was followed by a whole lot of awful stuff. Anger and murder and deceit and conflict and unforgiveness. And we see in the story now this thread of brokenness runs right through God's story. 
But at the same time, as this thread of brokenness is happening, there's this thread of God's character and grace and mercy and unbelievable love. And there's times in the story where the brokenness of humanity and the character and grace of God intersect. And what we see in those times is moments of beauty and wonder. And that's what we see here in chapter 33. God's grace intersects in the life of these two men. And so the background of the story, as we've seen in previous weeks, is that Jacob is the central character of this part of Genesis. And it's fair to say that Jacob has got a very checkered past. He may have been his mum's golden boy, but he hasn't always lived a golden life or a life of integrity. In fact, he's been dishonest and deceitful, and his brother Esau has been the one most profoundly affected by his actions. Jacob's behaviour has put in motion brotherly issues that have caused a loss of trust, a build-up of resentment and a complete breakdown of their relationship. We know that Esau held a grudge and it was so bad that he wanted to kill Jacob. And so Jacob decided to flee from his brother, uh, his rage, and he spent over 20 years living with his uncle Laban in Haran. Essentially, it was 20 years of wasted life, 20 years of lost memories, while Jacob was separated from his parents, his brother and his friends. But finally, Jacob, at God's command, is making his way back home to face up to his past and to hopefully reconcile with his family. And it's in this passage where we see God's grace intersect with the brokenness of these two brothers in a powerful way. But when we left the story last week, the end result, what was going to happen, is very unclear. Jacob, we know, had reached out to his brother with these sort of gifts. They were um, ways of seeking peace. Um, And he sent these gifts ahead of himself. And now Esau, we remember at the end of the last chapter, that Esau is now making his way to meet Jacob, and he has with him 400 men. And we're not really sure what's going to happen. So Jacob had sent his family over the other side of the Jabbok River, and he was left alone to ponder his thoughts as he awaited his brother's arrival. And you can probably imagine some of the thoughts that were going through his head and some of the things that were consuming his life in this particular time. What were his brother's intentions? Had Esau calmed down after all these years, or did he still want revenge? Did he still plan to kill Jacob? Would Jacob be received back into the family, or would he be rejected? Could he trust in the promises of God? These are some of the things that he would have been wrestling alone with as he sent his family away. But despite his fears and doubts, and in the midst of the confusion, while he was all alone, we saw last week that God showed up and he spent the night engaging Jacob in a wrestle. And the following morning, with a limp from the encounter with God, Jacob now commences his journey to meet Esau and the 400 men that were coming his way. Now, if this was a Hollywood movie, this would be a pretty intense moment, wouldn't it? You can imagine Jacob and his family and all their tribe and their cattle and everything making their way and there'd be kind of that mood music as Jacob's wrestling with his thoughts and there'd be anguish on his face and then you'd you know, sort of shift over to Esau and his 400 men and it'd be the military style music, wouldn't it? Dun, 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 as they're making their way towards Jacob and, and we as the consumers of this movie would be sitting there on the edge of our seat wondering what this moment would bring. Would it be a tragic bloodbath? As Esau finally gets his revenge, would it be an awkward conversation as they have to talk about the past? Or would it be a victorious reunion and reconciliation of two brothers? It's on a knife's edge, and this is the moment that we come to. Now, thinking back on the initial issue that Jacob and Esau had, it'd be fair to say as we look at their story, they gave us an example 
of exactly what not to do when it comes to conflict. I mean, they pretty much stuffed it up completely. We can relate to them and the way they did it because the way they did it and the way they responded is often the way we're tempted to respond when we come to conflict in our lives as well. But it would be fair to say that they got it absolutely, every part of it, wrong. Jacob was deceitful. He had no regret for the things that he'd done to his brother. There was no repentance. There was no attempt to make things right. He never turned the mirror on himself and examined his actions or his life. And instead of fronting up to what he had done, he ran away from uh, conflict and avoided it altogether. And I think some of us can relate to that. There's times where it's a lot easier to avoid conflict, isn't it, than to face up to it. And this is how Jacob handled the situation. Esau, on the other hand, well, he held a grudge. He dwelt over and over again. All he could think about is what Jacob had done and how he'd been let down. He was envious. He was resentful towards his brother. He allowed anger to grow to the point of rage and it was going to explode with this desire to kill. He was completely out of control. So while Jacob was the initiator, neither of them were innocent or behaved in a way that would please God or would be conducive towards future relationships. And as much as we want to justify our own actions in time of conflict, there are always consequences for the things that we do to others. And there's also always consequences also in the way we respond when others do things to us. Jacob and Esau for 20 years had now lived in the consequences of their behaviour, their actions, and it resulted in family breakdown and the loss of so many blessings that they could have experienced if they had have behaved differently. But during the wrestle, Jacob had a legitimate encounter with God and it changed his life. In our staff gathering this week, we talked through this passage and we looked at Jacob's actions and we wondered whether his actions towards Esau in seeking peace really came from fear of what may happen or whether it came from genuine heart change. I think you could probably conclude either from a direct reading of the text, but when you consider the direct context of Jacob's wrestle with God, his change of name and identity, I think that he's been transformed. And I think that's the filter that we should read this passage through. He is a new man. As we read through this incredible meeting of Jacob and Esau, who once got everything completely wrong in conflict, now 20 years later, they provide for us really what is a masterclass in reconciliation. And it's something that we can learn from this morning. And while they did it so well in their context and their story and their brokenness and their situation, we should take great confidence as the people of God because we also have the example of Jesus. We've experienced the wonder of being forgiveness, forgiven by God himself. We've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit as our counsellor and helper when going through a relational issue in our own lives. And so the question is, what can we learn from these two brothers today when it comes to reconciliation, relationship and dealing with conflict. Well, I think the first thing we can learn is that posture is important. Our posture is important. This is something I've realised physically since being uh, in pastoral ministry. Uh, most of you would know that I'm a qualified carpenter and I did that for uh, 11 years, worked on a building site. Um, but the ironic thing is this, that I've had more physical pain working in an office than I ever did working on a building site. In my role, I spent a considerable amount of time at a computer screen, writing sermons and doing other admin tasks. And if you work in a role like that, you've probably realised by now that if you don't get your posture just right, the end result is unnecessary pain. I type pretty fast on a keyboard, but I don't touch type. 
So I've often got to look down at the keyboard, which means my neck is bent. And there's been times semi-regularly where I've found myself in chronic pain in my neck and in my shoulders. And if you're an office worker, you can probably relate to that. I now have one of those desks that Greg Pittard uh, donated for me that goes up and down. And so I've had to learn to stand up at different times and just to adjust my posture and do some stretches and, and make sure that I, I get my posture standing up straight and, and change my posture because I want to avoid inevitable pain if I don't. I think it can be said the same about conflict in our lives. If our relational posture is wrong, it will almost always cause additional and unnecessary pain in our relationships. If our attitudinal posture is one of anger, if we constantly have an angry or sour look on our face, if we have a desire to prove ourselves right or to get even, or if it has any other motivation other than reconciliation, our posture will almost always cause additional pain in relationships, and so it's really important to get a godly posture and to make sure that our posture is right. In any argument, disagreement, or conflict, a lot of the end result down the track will depend almost entirely on the posture of the people involved. In the previous instance, we saw the posture of Jacob and Esau. It was terrible. It was out of whack. It was going to cause pain. There was deception and a lack of remorse and an avoidance on Jacob's behalf. And on Esau's behalf, he held the grudge. He allowed bitterness to take root and rage to set in. And that's how they handled it last time. And it clearly didn't work. It caused even more damage in their relationship. You know what they say? That insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. And what? Expecting different results. We do the same thing will get the same results. And unfortunately, after years of ministry, I've seen that there are many people that that's a definition of their life. Do the same things over and over again, year after year. Same attitudes, same responses, stay the same. And they are left wondering why the same issues follow them everywhere they go. And it's, it's tragedy. And I think we need to all stop and ask God to help us through self-awareness and self-control to learn lessons from the mistakes that we've all made at different times. And learn to live in a different way the next time we have a similar situation. This, once again, is a definition of growth. If you keep having reoccurring issues in your life, take some time this week, whatever that issue may be, to think through that, to reflect upon that, and with God's help, to determine to plot a different course. Before Jacob and Esau came together, we can clearly see a posture change. I think Jacob and Esau are two men who made a decision to change their posture and in Jacob's life, we see the posture of a transformed person in the way that he now comes towards Esau. He's a changed man after his encounter with God. For the first time in his life, he shows humility as God has caused him to turn the mirror on his own life and confront the reflection he sees before him. He's owned up to the facts of the matter, the truth of his past. And when God asked him who he was during the wrestle, he said, I am Jacob. I am the deceiver. He owned who he had been. He's not the unluckiest person on earth, surrounded by people who don't understand him. It's his behaviour that has caused the mess, and he owns it. I think it's so important when we're going through things in life, we need to own our part in any situation we find ourselves in. Everywhere he goes, there's been trouble. God has finally got through to him, and he has seen that he is the common denominator. And so as he submits himself to God and owns up to his past, God gave him a new name, and a new identity, and the time has come to start living according to his new name and his new identity. He is now an overcomer, and in Christ, you and I are as well. And that's the way that we should live. 
We are new people. We are a new creation in Christ. And so we need to live from that new identity, not from the way we used to live in the past. And so now the time has come after this encounter with God for Jacob to make things right with his brother. His changed posture is obvious from the words he uses and by the behaviour that he shows. So first of all, let's look at his words because we all know that words are powerful, don't we? The Bible says that words carry in them the power of life and the power of death. Words can be used to build up or they can be used to destroy. And they can be used to fuel the fire of conflict or to douse the flames. And we all have a decision on how we will use our words. In verses 4 and 5 of the previous chapter, and in verses 8 of chapter 33, we see an interesting choice of words when Jacob refers to Esau as Lord. Now, in the Hebrew language, the word Lord means master. So he's referring to his brother as master. Now, what's really interesting about that is that when the oldest son receives the blessing of the father, when the father is coming to the end of his life, the father usually declared that that older sibling was the master of all of their siblings. Now, if you remember back to chapter 27, you'll remember that Jacob deceived his father Isaac and stole the blessing that was rightfully Esau's. And when Esau protested, Isaac explained to him that it was too late to change. Isaac said to Esau, I have made Jacob Lord over you and have made all his relatives his servants, and I have sustained him with grain and new wine, so what can I possibly do for you, my son? Ever since that time, Jacob had been living in the blessing that he stole from Esau, and he didn't appear to have any remorse about it. But now, after this encounter with God, we see a genuine change in his life, and he now refers to his brother as Lord, even though his father had declared that he was Lord. So what is he doing with his words? Well, I think his words are a direct acknowledgement of his deception, of his past, and of Esau's rightful place within the family. It always takes a lot of humility, doesn't it, to own up to what you've done wrong. But this is what Jacob does with his words. His words have been carefully chosen to bring healing into this relationship. But it's not just Jacob's words, it's also his actions. We know that he sent messengers ahead with gifts of peace. And when Esau comes towards him in verse 3, it says that Jacob bowed down before him seven times to show a posture of respect and reconciliation. Jacob's words and actions were all pointed towards genuine repentance and a desire to be reconciled and in relationship with his brother. His posture paved the way for peace. And it's a reminder that our words and actions should also do the same. But you'll see in this story that it's not just Jacob's posture. It's also Esau's posture as well that makes relationship a possibility. We said a few weeks ago that we can't control the things that people do. We can only control what we do. And the Bible says, as far as it is with us, be at peace with everyone. And so our job is to try and be at peace with everyone, but we can't control how the other person responds. We've seen Jacob's posture. He's doing what he can do, but now we see Esau's response, and he also too shows a desire for relationship. And it's quite a powerful story as Jacob is bowing down in this vulnerable position before his brother, who he's now declaring as Lord. We're not sure what Esau is going to do. How's he going to respond to this uh, olive branch from his brother? But what we see in the text is something quite incredible. It says, while Jacob's down bowing, Esau runs towards him. He grabs him, he kisses him on the neck, and they both wept. What a moment. 
stunning moment, an emotional moment, a God-initiated reunion, a beautiful example and picture of grace and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation for each of us to learn from today. And I think you'll notice that it's very reminiscent of the story Jesus told about the prodigal son. In this story, Jesus is, uh, sorry, Jacob is the prodigal brother. He's gone away from home. He's done the wrong thing. He's blown up the relationship. He doesn't deserve his brother's favour. And yet Esau models to us the father's heart when he runs towards his brother in embrace and he shows a forgiveness and love that can only come directly from God himself. And it opens up our imagination, doesn't it, to what our relationships could look like if we live this out as well with God's help. So on one side we have the repentance and humility of Jacob and on the other side we have the forgiveness and grace of Esau. And when you put those things together, what you get is godly reconciliation. So the first thing we learn from Jacob and Esau is that posture is important. Now in a room like this, there is no doubt that many people in this room have pain points in your current relationships. You have relationships and there are pain points, there are unresolved issues. And we need to confront the fact that perhaps the way that we've approached conflict in our lives has caused unnecessary pain. And it could be the case that today, a Holy Spirit-initiated change of posture is required for us to move towards reconciliation. Posture is important. The second thing we can learn from these two brothers is that we shouldn't delay forgiveness. So point number two, if you're a note taker, don't delay forgiveness. You know, the greatest privilege in life is, is not walking your daughter down the aisle at her wedding. It's a wonderful privilege. It's not the greatest privilege in life. It's not being a parent, living in Australia, having a nice house, having a great job, as good as all those things are. The greatest privilege in life is knowing God through the person of Jesus Christ and being called a co-worker in his kingdom. That's an extraordinary thing. Extraordinary. If you are a Christian, your job title is agent of reconciliation. That's who you are. God saved you and he's called you to join his his mission as an agent of reconciliation. You might want to jot that down on a piece of paper, write it on the back of your hand. Some of you may need to put a permanent marker on your forehead. So when you look in the mirror, you're reminded of who you are. You're an ambassador of Jesus who is reconciling all creation to himself on this glorious mission and he has called you to be a co-worker in that pursuit. He has called you and he has called me. And I just think about that and I go, wow, what a privilege that God would call you and me and all of our brokenness and mistakes and past and failures, he would still call you and me through the person of Jesus to be co-workers in this incredible mission of redemption. That is the greatest privilege you will ever have in life. And I think sometimes we underappreciate what an incredible thing that is, that the creator, the sustainer, and the saviour of the universe would invite us to be part of his grand plan for all creation. And I want us to let that sink in for a moment this morning. He's chosen you. It's almost absurd. It's certainly absolutely amazing that you and I are called to represent the character of God and to be ambassadors of Christ by living out the kingdom here in our community, in our church, in our world. And as phenomenal as that is, we need to realize that we also have a real enemy that wants to rob us of that role in God's kingdom and he wants to distract us with a myriad of different things and he wants to get us busy focusing on other stuff. And one of the greatest strategies he has is conflict. We should not be unaware of the schemes of the enemy. 
And this is one of the greatest tools he has, is to get us fighting with one another so that we're not representing the character of God to the world that desperately needs it. So recently on a nature program, I've mentioned this before, but I love watching programs, and particularly about lions. They're my favourite creature on the planet. They're kind of majestic. I think of God as a, you know, the lion and the lamb. and it's a, it's a wonderful image of what God is like. But I saw recently on this program, this episode about lions, that it had a, a side focus on springboks. I'm not talking about the rugby team, mainly because I don't believe that rugby is a real thing. <laughs> I talk about a springbok. Talking about something that's real, a gazelle-like antelope. Normally they are very alert to predators, and in God's design, he has placed in their makeup uh, the ability to be fast and agile and nimble so that they can avoid the lion that prowls around looking to devour them. But in the episode I was watching, there were two springboks who were fighting each other in the Kalahari Desert, and they were really going for it, and they weren't taking anything around them because they were too busy fighting with one another, and they were really trying to hurt one another. It was pretty painful to watch. But what they didn't know... And what they didn't notice is the lion that was prowling around them, waiting for his opportunity to attack. Before they knew what had happened, the lion raced in and killed one of these springboks. And I think that conflict for a springbok is not too dissimilar to conflict with us. When we refuse to forgive one another, the enemy has us right where he wants us to be. And in our distraction, focusing on one another and proving ourselves right and getting angry and all those things that all of us do at different times, we open ourselves up to be devoured by him. And we're in the midst of a conflict that we're not willing to resolve. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to be an agent of reconciliation. That's why it's so important that we don't delay forgiveness. Because the longer we do, the more susceptible we are to the enemy's attacks and the less likely we are to represent Christ. As I said before, Jacob and Esau got everything wrong the first time around, but eventually, at the second attempt, they provide this wonderful example of reconciliation for us to learn from, but it took 20 years. 20 years of turmoil, 20 years of sleepless nights, 20 years of heartbreak and pain, 20 years of lost relationship, 20 years of the enemy having his way in their lives. That's an absolute tragedy and the worst part of all of it is that it was completely unnecessary. If you've got unresolved issues in your relationships, don't let them linger any longer. Don't let them linger any longer where they will rob you of the peace that Jesus saved you to experience. Stop being a victim. Start being a victor. In the words of Nicky Gumbel, the first to apologise is the bravest. The first to forgive is the strongest. The first to forget is the happiest. Nicky Gumbel's pretty good, but he's not Jesus. Jesus says, when you stand praying, if you hold, listen to this, anything against anyone. What does that cover? Anything against anyone covers everything. If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Paul in Ephesians 4.26 says, In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down. Now let's do a little little lesson about creation. How often does the sun go down? It's hard to know in Melbourne, isn't it? But it goes down every day, right? So the the sun's going to go down. When's it going to go down next? Tonight. It's going to go down tonight, right? So what does Paul say? Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. 
Colossians 3, 13 says, Bear with each other and forgive, once again, whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And you might think, well, Luke, you don't understand. You don't know what they said. You don't know what they did. And I can't possibly forgive them. And I have one word for you if you're in that place today, and the word is nonsense. It's unbiblical. It's untrue. And it's underestimating the power of God in your life. It's not that you can't. It's that you're choosing not to. Forgiveness might not be easy, but it carries with it an instant blessing. And the instant blessing is the relational inner turmoil lifts off your life immediately and it's replaced with peace. With God's help, make a different choice. And the fruits of that will be a different life. And never forget that you have been called to be God's representative. And as I was thinking about God's character this week, I was wondering, is there anything more godlike than forgiveness and reconciliation? Isn't that the centre of the gospel? That God himself in human form came to die on a cross so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. That is God. The gospel is the centre of all we do. And what we find at the centre of the gospel is forgiveness and reconciliation and wonderful relationships. So is there anything more godlike than forgiveness and reconciliation? Is there any better way to represent his heart in our church and in our local community? When we choose to forgive, we actually reveal the very character of God to the world around us and we demonstrate God-like characteristics. And I've got to say my favourite verse in this whole passage is verse 10. In verse 8 and 9, Esau you know, has these flocks that come ahead of him as a, as a gift from Jacob. And he says to Jacob, what, what are these all about? And Jacob says, well, it's to find favour in your eyes, my Lord. But Esau says, I've already got plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Verse 10, no, please, said Jacob, if I have found favour in your eyes, accept this gift from me. Now listen to this bit. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favourably. We don't know whether Esau even had a relationship with God. The text never indicates that he does, but Jacob sees God's face in the forgiveness of his brother. And the question is, if, if God is represented in our forgiveness, who is represented when we don't? If God is represented in our forgiveness, who is represented when we don't? Forgiveness is always possible because in Christ we have experienced it first. We, we sung about this this morning, that forgiveness was bought, I wrote it down in my hand, with the precious blood of Christ. You and I have experienced forgiveness, right? All the things we've done wrong, the glorious news of the gospel is that in Christ we are forgiven of everything we've done, everything we're doing, everything we'll ever do in the future, completely forgiven by God in Christ. That's the glorious news of the gospel. And so because we've received that and through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are given all the tools we need to use to apply it to one another. And so the last point is that we are to use the tools that God has given us. Posture is important. important. Don't delay forgiveness, but use the tools that God has given. We've all been given the tools we need in Christ to be what he commands us to be, agents of reconciliation. When the Lord gives us a task to do, he also gives us the tools we need to carry it out. And most of you here would know John Searle. John's here today, so I'm on the sound desk before. I'm not sure he is right now, but he's just there. Uh, you would know that John's a bus driver, but on the side he's also a handyman. And so if you need something fixed at your house, um, you can ring him up, 1-800-JOHN-SEARLE, something like that. And uh, he can come around if you need, you know, a fence 
built or a picture hung or a door fixed or any other task around the house, he can come and fix it. But the thing about John is he's only a handyman because he can use the tools in his toolbox. Without the tools, he's no longer a handyman. He's just a man like the rest of you. And it'd be weird just inviting just a man over to do nothing in your house, wouldn't it? You know, he comes over because he's a handyman, right? Because he can use the tool in his toolbox, tools in his toolbox. And it's the same for Christians. If we don't use the tools we've been given in our gospel toolbox, then we're not really that handy, are we? As Peterson says, if we have the audacity to claim that we believe in God, then our faith in a God like that is something that we should live out fully. And so a Christian who doesn't apply gospel tools is not very Christ-like. If you take the Christ out of Christian, you just end up being Ian. (laughs) I'm sure Ian's a really nice guy, but we need more than Ian to have reconciliation in our relationships. We need to be Christians. And to keep Christ in the Christian by applying the tools that we've been given. And I'm sorry to anyone who's Ian today. (laughs) We love you. For Jacob and Esau, we see God work in the situation and we see them reflect the character of God when it comes to repentance and forgiveness and they did it all without the ultimate earthly example of Jesus who died on a cross so that we could be forgiven even if we don't deserve it. It's what we sing about. It's amazing grace. As post-cross Christians, we are left in absolutely no doubt as to what God expects of us in these areas and so we need to stop start making excuses and start doing what God's called us to do. Because we can have excuses or we can have relationship, but we can't have both. Gospel toolbox is repentance, forgiveness, compassion, reconciliation and grace. He's given us the power of his Holy Spirit to help guiding us as we can bear uh, his fruit of love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And as we live out, the goodness of God radiates. As we live these things out, the goodness of God radiates throughout creation in the most magnificent way. And what we're doing is we're stepping into his story. We're entering his redemption plan. These are the external evidences of a regenerated person. These tools have been given to us by God to apply daily, weekly, monthly. We're to apply the gospel tools liberally, regularly, and generously towards one another. These apply to anyone for anything, so that whatever grievances we have, they can be replaced with relationship. And as we do, we represent God's character and give a glimpse of his future kingdom in the present. Imagine what the church would be if every Christian around the world deliberately did this every day, in every circumstance, towards every person. We would be what Jesus designed us to be and what this world so desperately needs, the hands and feet of Jesus himself. People would know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. Our willingness to forgive is evidence that we know God's forgiveness because forgiven people forgive. The last thing in this passage is Jacob building an altar. And when they did that, particularly in the Old Testament, it was always to symbolize significant moments as an act of worship to God. It's a line in the sand. It's a closing of the door on the past and declaring a new way forward. The promises of God were coming to pass in Jacob's life and the roadblock that we've been holding him back was this roadblock of unforgiveness and it's now been overcome. He's an overcomer and it opens up a new chapter in his life. Perhaps today it's the same issue, the same roadblock that we're facing. 
unforgiveness, conflict may even be the same issue that is holding us back from a whole new season of possibility and joy. Well, the good news is this, that you can build an altar today. You can lay it down before God as an act of worship. Conflict is inevitable. But learn the lessons. Let's learn the lessons of Jacob and Esau. We can pave the way to reconciliation through our posture, through our words and actions. We can choose not to delay forgiveness any longer. And we can be in relationship by using the gospel tools that we've been given. And perhaps as we do, people will see the face of God in us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love because we have first been loved. We forgive because we have first been forgiven. Today, we want to take a moment to stop and reflect on your extraordinary grace towards us. We don't deserve it. We didn't seek you out. We weren't even acknowledging we'd done wrong, and yet you pursued us, and by your Spirit you have saved us through the work of Jesus at the cross. And today we want to just stop, reflect on that, and say thank you so much that we can stand before you as righteous and as forgiven and as overcomers and as the children of God because you have forgiven us. That is extraordinary. What an incredible gift. Lord, we also know that now as your people of God, as your people, the people of God, we are called to represent you in our world. And Lord, we acknowledge today it's not easy. Relationships are complex and difficult. There's times we get it wrong and there's times where we are wronged. And Lord, we acknowledge that our natural default position is not to be humble, it's not to forgive, it's not to lay things down before you, but it's to be prideful, it's to prove ourselves right, it's to get angry. And Lord, we need your help to be reminded that we are filled with the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. And so today, Lord, we ask for your help that we would forgive one another, uh, people in this church, we'd forgive our family, our friends, we'd forgive people in our community, in our society, that we would love in a radical, countercultural way and that we would do it in a nature that we would love people that don't deserve it. Because that's what grace is. It's undeserved love that we have received and that we are to give. As we do, Lord, I pray that our friends, our families, our neighbours, our world, the people that don't know you, would see your face in the actions of your people. And as they do, Lord, I pray that they would realise that they need to know a God like you, that they would need to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour as well, so that they too can be forgiven and learn to forgive. Lord, help us not to make excuses, but help us to understand who we are in you and the power of God that we have in our lives as a result of all that you've done for us. And so as we go into this week, Lord, if there are unresolved issues in any of our lives, I pray that we'd have the courage and the humility to make those things right and to seek what we know you're seeking, and that is relationship. We pray this today in the powerful name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it's stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, 
including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.